The Lord is with you. Lift up your hearts. On behalf of Dean Robert Allen Hill and the Marsh Chapel community, we welcome you to this Sunday service of ordered worship, one part of our 2009 National Summer Preachers Series on the theme, Darwin and Faith. We are pleased to welcome back to our pulpit today the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, Dean Emeritus of Marsh Chapel, also Professor of Philosophy, Religion, and Theology in the School of Theology and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. We are also pleased to welcome as our guest conductor and organist, Mr. Brian Jones, Emeritus Director of Music at Trinity Church, Copley Square, Boston. We encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your selection of personal forms of ministry, and your presence with us for worship. We offer our praise to God in liturgy, homily, and music as a gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, through the radio at National Public Radio, WBUR 90.9 FM, and through webcast and podcast live at WBUR.org, and through our website, www.bu.edu chapel. So now, beloved, rise up, now and throughout this service in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, in the love and worship of God.
pray together. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We are invited to a period of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. Beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Job. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among the Lord and said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan said to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and, and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire from God fell... The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. 
while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. The word of the Lord.
Please join me in verses from Psalm 130 with the Antiphon. I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be worshipped. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In the Lord's word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, with the Lord is plenteous redemption, and the Lord will redeem Israel from all iniquities. Sisters, please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our hymn. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Glory to you, O Lord. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship 
in spirit and truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. be seated. To return to this pulpit in a series devoted to the impact of Charles Darwin on religion is an honor and a privilege. And you see, I have grown a Darwin beard just for the occasion. I'm especially privileged to follow the Reverend Dr. Wesley Wildman, who last Sunday reminded us that our conservative evangelical Christian friends who oppose Darwin's theory of evolution know whereof they speak. If Darwin's theory is approximately right, then God cannot be that benevolent supernatural agent of evangelical piety who does good things for you when you believe in him. I use the male pronoun advisedly. The evolutionary world is random, wasteful, and bloody, as well as glorious and awesome. 
No benevolent divine person would create that way. Our conservative evangelical sisters and brothers have an additional symbol for God, different from the benevolent supernatural agent. Some evangelicals identify with the God of wrath and violence, who dealt death to the firstborn of Egypt after himself hardening Pharaoh's heart against the Israelites, and who will come again in the person of Christ the Avenger to destroy the earth and save only the remnant of people who persevere in servile obedience. Like the God of love and benevolence, the God of strict justice and wrath is believed to be a hands-on administrator of a world which is understood to be like a kingdom. Darwin's world is not like a kingdom with a benevolent or demanding tyrant. It's more like a jungle. If Darwin is more or less right, and all the evidence points that way, God cannot be conceived literally to be an intentional personal being without also being conceived to be wasteful, cruel, and pleased to toy with us. Our text from the book of Job is a profound recognition of this. The author deliberately uses figurative language that is not intended literally. The opening scene in heaven where God lets Satan torture Job and kill his children solely in order to justify God's bragging is heavy with irony. If God is conceived literally to be a personal being, like the God of Job's prologue, then the pervasive suffering of innocent people signifies that God is just toying with us. The main portion of that book is a series of rather philosophical arguments by Job's friends to the effect that if Job suffers, it must be because he deserves it, for God is just and would not let Job suffer unjustly. For Job's friends, friends, God simply cannot be conceived to be someone who deals out pain and death to win a bet with a heavenly colleague. Their arguments all fail, however. Job has done nothing to deserve what he is getting. Think of the people in Darfur. Therefore, God cannot be conceived to be just. The passage toward the end of the book, on which Reverend Wildman preached last Sunday, where God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job directly, is usually taken to mean that there is no place for us to stand in order to apply moral categories of justice or injustice to God. The Creator is beyond good and evil, unlike persons. The very end of the book of Job returns to the heavenly courtroom where God wins his bet with Satan. God then restores Job's health, gives him new children, and makes him even wealthier than before. Of course, this is ironic. 
New children, however welcome, cannot replace the earlier loved ones who were killed frivolously. Restored health does not justify Job's needless agony. And what does Job need with even more wealth than he had before? If God is conceived as a person, as in the literary imagination of the prologue and epilogue of the book of Job, then that divine person delights in gratuitous suffering and is not benevolent or just, and the book of Job is against that. So there is profound biblical warrant for rejecting the idea that God is a benevolent or wrathful person of the sort that plays such a prominent role in conservative evangelical Christian and Jewish and Muslim worldviews. We need a better conception of God than that, however much that anthropomorphic vision is a mainstay of popular piety. Of course, there may be occasions in which it is legitimate to symbolize God in personal terms, but not with literal meaning. Nevertheless, the issue is not merely one of finding a conception of God that accords with what we know about the world in cosmic and biological evolution. The larger issue is about the worldviews involved, of which conceptions of God are only elements. A worldview links conceptions or symbols of ultimate matters, such as God, to other more profane but important affairs of life, such as how to treat family, community, strangers, when to have babies, go to war, to pray, how to accept new life, how to relate to the earth, how to be at home, or how to be alienated, what to do with guilt, with economic hardship, with the fragmentation of life, how to face death, how to imagine a world without you. The worldviews of the great religions exhibit a continuum of life issues from the most sacred, defining the ultimate, to the most profane, with many combinations of symbols in between. And the symbols of the ultimate get linked to all the places mixing the sacred and the profane. For instance, how does your worldview link your understanding of God to the way you should treat people? If you believe that God is on the side of your in-group, say the Christians, then you will be inclined to treat Christians with justice and love and may be ready to treat non-Christians with hostility at least until they convert to your side. On the other hand, if you believe that God is equally the enthusiastic creator of everybody, then you will be inclined at least to try to treat every person with love and justice, regardless of your in-group. What your worldview believes about nature, about various societies and communities, and about your history makes a difference to how your symbols of God are ranged along the continuum from the sacred to the profane.
Uh, the salient point here is that conceptions of God are not determined only by our best thoughts about God, but also by our human interests in relating to God and relating God to all the elements in our worldview. Suppose, following the book of Job, we say that God is beyond good and evil, wholly transcendent. Fine, we can sit easy with our Darwinian worldview about nature. So then, just how does God bear upon good and evil? How should we think about our suffering in divine terms? How should we deal with wickedness and guilt? You can see why there is such a temptation, almost an irresistible urge to personify God, to say that God wants us to do good and avoid evil, that God shares our suffering, that wickedness is met with God's demand for repentance. At some sophisticated level, we know that it is a mistake to domesticate God, literally, to a kind of interactive person just in order to relate God in familiar ways to human affairs. At another level, it seems that if we do not do that, we do not have a coherent worldview that lets the sacred bear upon these profane but important human affairs. Our conservative evangelical friends feel this pull. Now consider another continuum within worldviews and imagine it like this. Imagine the continuum from the sacred to the profane to be a horizontal line. And imagine another continuum to be a vertical line that moves to intersect the horizontal line at any point. The vertical line is a continuum from very sophisticated thinking at one end to folk thinking at the other. Most of us think in between. Regarding the sacred or ultimate, sophisticated thinkers for more than 2,000 years have known that God transcends good and evil, and in fact, every other distinction. The first chapter of Colossians says that Jesus is the first visible image of the invisible, that is, unimaginable God. Thomas Aquinas, whose theology shaped Christianity for centuries, said that God is the absolutely simple, infinite, non-determinate act of to be, and is incapable of relating to anything else. Thomas's God is not a being of any sort. Paul Tillich, in the 20th century, has described God as the ground of all beings that exhibit any distinctions whatsoever. At the other end of the sophistication spectrum are the folk images of God as the mover of storms, the battle deity fighting competitors, the warrior king of the Exodus story, the personal god of interactive prayer who hides or reveals parking places. In civilized religious worldviews, 
the rhetorical center of gravity, falls somewhere between the high sophistication of the theologians and the undisciplined projections of folk religion. Our liturgies are somewhere in the middle, mixing both sophisticated notions such as the Trinity with folk practices such as begging for favors. No worldview is consistent in its symbols because it picks them up from all along the sophistication continuum. And we have to learn to live with that inconsistency. The sophistication spectrum does not apply only to the sacred parts of the worldview, but also to the more profane parts. There is university physics and folk conceptions of how nature works. University biology and folk biology. University psychology and folk psychology. Although we in this congregation believe that we view the world through the sophisticated scientific end of our worldview, in point of fact, we live most of the time somewhere in the middle. We drink water, not H2O. You know how enormously complex our worldviews are, linking everything from the most sacred to the most profane, and expressing these linkages in symbols that jumble from the most sophisticated to pop culture. But these worldviews make all the difference. Our conservative evangelical friends really object only on the surface to the science, per se, in Darwin's theory of evolution. As Reverend Wildman said, their objection is more to the negative effect of that science on their views of God as a personal, interactive being. And yet, it is not only to the implications for the conception of God that evangelicals object. It is really to Darwin's undermining of the whole worldview linking their conception of God to the spectrum of life's issues reaching into the profane. So much of that worldview has to do with placating a personal God with repentance and obedience so that he will not punish us with everlasting torments, rewarding us instead with a good heavenly life. The placating of a personal God determines that worldview's approach to morality, which is then for the sake of reward, to other people, which then focuses on judging who is among God's elect, to nature, which then has only instrumental significance, and to responsibility, which then has to do with obedience to divine authority. If that evangelical worldview is undermined by Darwin's science, the whole world seems suddenly meaningless. This can lead to passionate denial of modern science in the name of biblical literalism, or it can lead to angry rejection of and resentment at the exploded evangelical worldview itself. So many of my students here at the university are ex-evangelicals whose entire world has been undermined and who are desperately searching for something that can be saved in religion. 
This brings me to the positive task for popular religion in the day of Darwin, by which I mean religion for thinking people, not just the sophisticates, nor the devotees of folk religion. The gospel this morning is from John, where Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that religion will evolve. Remember that he reminded her of the distinction between his Jewish religion and her Samaritan one, and said that his was better. But then he said, quote, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, as the Samaritans did, nor in Jerusalem, where the Jews worshiped, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The task of our day is to develop in fear and trembling our old faith with an appropriate new worldview that worships God in spirit and in truth. Part of what we learn from Darwin and evolutionary theory more generally is that the universe is vastly older and larger than was understood in biblical times. We are not its center, and we have only a tiny sample of what it contains, possibly creatures far more interesting than ourselves. So worshiping God in spirit and truth means worshiping the creator of this vast cosmos and accepting a very humble place within it. Such cosmic humility should be decisive for an authentic Christian worldview. Another part of what we learn from Darwin is that the nature in us is unimaginably complex. We are creatures of molecular bondings, of intricate metabol metabolic processes, of cells and microbes, of organs that evolve through DNA and that pass on those codes. Our bodies float in a roiling biological ocean, and we must worship God as creator of that vast whirlpool of nature. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, our religious worldview is still evolving. Now the Bible is replete with images of God as the creator of the extent and the depth of nature and is deficient only in that its images of nature are far too small with the result that its attention to human affairs is far too large, distorting the modeling of God. A proper worldview for religion in the day of Darwin will dissociate the historical and personal problems of profane human life from conceptions of a God as a person who wills this or that to happen like a divine actor in a human narrative. Instead, a proper worldview will associate every part of our profane lives with a profound humility about our place in God's vast creation. Jesus said, the first will be last and the last first. A proper worldview will associate every part of life with a profound reverence for the astonishing complexity of natural evolution 
with which God has created us together. Jesus said, God shines the sun on both the just and unjust. It will associate all our human relations with a divinely inspired love based on a grateful appreciation of commonality within the evolving universe. Jesus said we should love one another, even our enemies. With regard to profane human affairs, how to organize our lives, foster our families, nourish ourselves and others, deal with politics, build communities, make love, make war, make art, these are mainly our own responsibilities. In a proper popular religion in the day of Darwin, we should take up these responsibilities in mature ways, declining to behave like obedient children of a benevolent divine father, or even worse, like abject slaves of a wrathful divine tyrant. Jesus calls us to the amazing project of learning true humility and reverence in the face of the Father of all creation, and learning to love even the random wild violence of evolving creation, including our enemies, the earthquake, wind, and fire, and our own personal foes. That project is a long way from completion, and its way is tumultuous. One task for us as thinking Christians is to work out that worldview with rigorous inquiry going on from Darwin. The more important task is to discipline ourselves to the humility, reverence, and love as well as human responsibility that make disciplined religion itself a part of evolving human excellence. Jesus calls us for that tumult. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for prayer, I invite you to stand, to sit, or come forward, to kneel at the altar, as it is your tradition to do so. Now let us sing together the call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul reminds us, in our weakness, as we struggle to find words for our prayers, 
the Holy Spirit touches us, enters our prayer, and sighs that are too deep for words. Amidst the pain and confusion of our daily hardships and our world events, we call out to you, God, with our sighs, with the deepest part of our hearts. God of reconciliation, help us to connect, to unify, to come together in wholeness and peace. May the Holy Spirit teach us to pray in solidarity with those who rejoice and those who mourn. May the Holy Spirit teach us to pray in community, not divided by the lines of our nationalities or our theologies, but together to pray together from the deepest part of our hearts. God of healing, lift up those who suffer in body, in mind, or spirit. Comfort those who are hungry, lonely, or without a place to call home. Give them courage and hope in their troubles. Help us to hear their sighs so that we may in turn share your love and be your presence in their sorrow. God of creation, lift up those who suffer poverty, injustice, and oppression in the struggles of our neighborhoods, in the trials of our economy, and in the pain of our war. May those who govern the nations of the world use their authority with wisdom, kindness, and peacefulness. Awaken in them a thirst for justice that embodies your care for this earth and for the human community. Awaken in their minds and in our minds the compassion that calls from our hearts. God of life, we pray through our, that through our sighs we will feel your breath and respond in loving kindness. Gathering all these prayers together, these petitions spoken aloud, and all the prayers we hold in our hearts, we pray as Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The peace of the Lord is also always with you. We invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship so that we can get to know you better and so that you can get to know each other better. Please sign the red book at the end of the pew, pass it along, and then pass it back. Take a look at who signed next to you and enjoy greeting them after the service. We also encourage you to visit our website, www.bu.edu chapel. There you will find ongoing and future events, as well as opportunities to participate in the continuing life and work of Marsh Chapel, and also opportunities for online giving. Our friends at Refugee Immigration Ministry tell us that they will be resettling about 45 Iraqi clients over the next several months. They would love to have students and non-students become involved in their Cambridge Brookline cluster. Further information and contact information is on the bulletin board next to the chapel office downstairs, and we invite you to take a look. And last, but certainly not least, please join us for coffee downstairs after the worship service. And now the ushers will wait upon us for our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings.
God who is with us, we thank you for all the ways you touch our lives, our minds, our hearts. We pray these gifts will be used to further the work of your kingdom here on earth and so touch the lives of others. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. forth in peace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. <laughs>